Hey everybody, I'm super excited to have Emily here. She is the head of growth at Voiceful, an app that allows anyone to make voice apps without coding. Emily, how are things with you today? Everything's great. I'm really excited to be connecting with family again. I haven't <laughs> seen him since we were back in Toronto, pre-bubble. So super excited to be here and super excited to chat with a familiar face. Yeah, and you're not in Toronto anymore. You're on the whole start of path, like the super cool voice voice on a rocket ship, right? Like it's obviously like, pew. <laughs> so no, uh, would you say? Yeah, I mean, we we've been expanding really quickly. I'm now over in the states, so I was in San Francisco side, and now over in Seattle. But it's been really exciting to kind of see even like just a lot of Toronto startups as well, kind of on a similar like crazy path with like a bunch of unicorns as of late. Hopefully, you know, maybe we'll be one one day. (laughs) (laughs) It will be. I'm claiming it. It will be. (laughs) For sure. I mean, before we get started talking about onboarding and growth, just love for people to just get to know you. And I love asking this question because you have an interesting response. We just chatted about this. Something that I've never heard of. Like I've asked a bunch of people the same question. What's been your pandemic hobby? And I've heard baking and gardening and for me cooking, but yours is a little bit more interesting. What is that for you? (laughs) Well, baking, cooking, gardening, they're all great things. But uh, over quarantine, my partner and I started a sticker store. Uh, We wanted to try something in the physical realm rather than uh, the the digital space. And we ended up uh, doing some really awesome, like even just like large campaigns. This is a the badass granny who beat up her attacker in San Francisco. She became a little bit of an icon during like the Stop Asian Hate campaign. So got to work with some really awesome designers across the States, work on some cool campaigns. We raised over $40,000 in the span of a few days. And also teamed up with Squarespace. So really, really cool. Still got to bring it back into my digital roots, but it's my quarantine hobby now. Man, I can't thought that's so cool. Just like I started a sticker store and raised 40000 and part of it was Squarespace. That's so, so cool. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, let's jump in to talk about onboarding. You've worked a lot. Can you share a little bit about like your experience with Onboard? Because you've done it in B2C, B2B, marketplaces, and uh, SaaS. Like, what's your experience been just improving and working on user onboarding experiences? Yeah. I mean, onboarding is like that is ever present. Like Mm. it's one of those things that I think probably my fascination started with it from like early video game era to now really wanting to master it with every product that I touch. But for me, I've been in growth, like you mentioned, kind of across the board from like B2C to marketplace to B2B and now more recently in B2C to B, which is just a lot of jargon. But uh, in all of those cases, I've really been focused on really marrying how do you do onboarding and activation at scale? And onboarding is obviously, you're no stranger to how important this moment is, but it's just an incredible, almost like your first impression of what the product is. So why wouldn't I want to master that, make sure that that's a really amazing experience for people? And so I've worked on everything from it being totally in-app to the ulterior sides of things from what emails, notifications kind of come through. And even for B2B, how does it interplay with real-time meetings alongside what they're doing in product? Really, really fascinating. Now, with your experience with uh, B2C and B2B and B2B to C, (laughs) 
what what is the difference? I'm curious. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm guessing B2C is more, you can be more playful and do video game style stuff. B2B, maybe not so much, but I that could be completely wrong. What is that difference uh, and similarities between the different onboarding for different types of businesses? Yeah. So I think like with every product, whether it's B2B or B2C, like there's a single player experience and there's a sometimes multiplayer experience. (laughs) So like, I'm always going to bring it back to video games because even if it is a large enterprise tool, like if that end user who's Mm. getting onboarded onto it doesn't know how to use it or is let's say not having a great experience on it, like that's still a miss from onboarding. So I would say like the biggest differences are like just resourcing and like the motivation behind why someone would want to use that product. Mm. So with B2C, it's really more inherently like me as a consumer, one person trying to win them over in their own individual experience. And maybe they'll invite somebody else and repeat. Whereas with B2B, they might have exterior kind of stresses or pressure from their company being like, we've chosen this product. It's Mm. not going anywhere, but you're going to need to learn it. So how do you make that delightful? And that still boils down to how the product sells itself, onboards itself and works, but it might be coupled with like external meetings or an advocate to try to get them going on, whether it's an account manager or someone on their own team. Really, I love that single player to multiplayer. I'm thinking about <laughs> Super Mario now or, or some other video games. Uh, and I just love that idea. Like you got to nail the single player and that there's, pressure inside the company that really depends on what the experience would be like. I want to get to, like I said, you've worked on onboarding in many different companies uh, and different types of businesses. How do you approach it now that you must have some kind of process now or like how you look at it? Let's say you've, you've been approached like, Emily, help us improve our customer activation or our onboarding. What would be your process now that you've worked on so many different types of onboarding experiences? Yeah. So I think like ultimately, like it all starts with like trying to do like whether or not you already have one and you want to go and audit it and see kind of where are the gaps there or whether you're starting from scratch. It starts from like actually going through and trying the onboarding yourself. So that could mean going through what's already there and making a list of kind of, okay, what felt weird, what didn't, speaking aloud. And you'd be shocked at kind of how deep you can get into the weeds there, just trying to put on a UX hat for a little bit. Then the opposite side of that is like get on the phone and onboard people because ultimately what you're trying to do is scale that experience so that it's equally as delightful for anybody that comes on at any time. And so in a lot of cases, some of the most successful onboarding sprints that I've been on where we're on the phone testing out and walking people through Google Slides even, trying to show them what works, what doesn't, and reading their reactions to it. And that often is what translates into our first iteration, our first sprint on how we describe what the product's doing. And so like, that's like bare bones. But if you want to dive into kind of secondarily, is also just try to really boil down what is your goal for onboarding. Mm. We talk a lot about like the aha moment, Mm, which takes a lot of freaking time to get to (laughs) and nail, not necessarily get to for the user. But think about like, not the first 30 days. Like, what about like the first hour, the Mm. first day that somebody has on the product? What does that look like? Because that is by far going to be the most intention, most, like most sessions, like for everybody, they're going to hit that. So what does that look like? And Mm. if even in worst case scenario, they churn after that day, 
what do you selfishly need as a company to know to get better for the next time? And so really using your onboarding as a learning experience, as much as it is a teaching experience, is an incredibly useful reframing that I think, or I've like marketing dubbed like the fruit fly theory because they only live for a day. But (laughs) really just boil that down. What's that one day bucket list that you need them to do? Really, really fascinating around that. I don't know if you can go into this if it's uh, proprietary or it's a secret around what does that look like for for voice flow? Uh, I mean, I mentioned earlier, it's an app that allows anyone to make voice apps without coding. I'm sure you've, you've thought about this ahead of growth, but what is that hour? I love how you put it, like the food fly. Like what does that first hour, that first day look like for somebody who just signed up for voice flow? Like the ultimate thing that we really want to kind of think about is like from a company standpoint, I want to know like, what channel are you excited about? Like for us, like, unlike with web where you're coming on, you're building a website, whether it's no code or not, you're like, you know, you're building for the web and like maybe responsibly for mobile, for conversation design. Like that could be a chat bot. That could be Alexa. That could be Google. I want to know that because that directly informs like, what is the information I'm going to serve up to you to make sure that you're successful in that? So that's a big thing. The other one is like, what role, kind of what are you interested in? What's your technical ability as being a no-code tool? I want to know, are you a developer who just wants to speed up your workflow? Are you a designer so I could speak that lingo to you? Or are you like a maker who's just curious? And because that will also contextually make it a better experience for you. And then from like an actual like product standpoint of like actions I want them to take is like, Our whole drag and drop system is built on literal like steps and blocks. So it's almost like Lego. If I wanted (laughs) you to be successful in Lego, you got, I got to show you where the pieces are and then you got to like learn how they fit together and you're going to eventually mold this thing together. doesn't have to be done, but once you repeat that, you know how to build. Mm -hmm. So my ultimate goal is to get them to use some of our basic blocks and drag them onto the canvas, get into that motion then link those blocks together. So create my first like conjunction and then press test to like actually hear it back to them because that is going to be the core for everything else that they're going to do moving forward. Mm. Going back to Lego. I love Lego as a kid. <laughs> it's it, sounds, it sounds like, it sounds like you're, you're having too much fun <laughs> with, with, yeah. with this. That's really, really interesting. Uh, in terms of like just taking a step back, I'm, I'm guessing... Now you have some kind of, you figured all of this out. Can you take me like what it looked like when it started? I'm guessing you you were talking about presenting this to a new sign up. Is that what you did? Like, you're like, oh, you sign up. Can I, can we jump on? Like, what did you did early on to get mm-hmm. to where voice flows onboarding is at now? Yeah. I mean, like every onboarding is a work in progress forever. Mm. Like no one has ever done onboarding. No one's ever fully solved onboarding. I think that's why it's so meaty, why it's so interesting and why it's always like a sprint that people compete over. (laughs) And so like, I think that like for us, whether it was at VoiceFlow, whether it's at other companies, whether like Tilt, Clio, like there's been moments where I've hopped on the phone and I've tried to like teach people hand in hand. I also, for VoiceFlow, my early days, I was like, physically jumping on any workshop I possibly could going and testing out. Can I, or my whole spiel was like, we're going to build a voice app in an hour or like 30 minutes. And I wanted to make sure they could. And so a lot of those things were testing in person, 
then now repurposing that for the online world because that is the world we live in. Um, and now that's about reframing that into more professionalized versions of it. So that helped to inform our tutorial series, our workshops that we now sponsor, or now even moving forward into our newer sprint for onboarding is like, how do we make that more self-serve, more dynamic, more contextual? Really fascinating. I love how like you... That's such an interesting promise. You can build a voice app in 30 minutes. And I mean, that that's clearly saying the promise. And I guess that also gives out what, would you define that as a successfully onboarded user then? Is somebody who who completes who that promise within, I don't know if it's 30 minutes, but like, I'm curious mm-hmm. how long it takes. Like what is a successful onboarder? Is it somebody who ends up launching an app within a certain time period? Or is it, you talked about a little bit earlier around clicking the test button. Yeah. So I would say if you asked me two years ago, it would have been like publish something to Alexa in like 15 minutes would have been like my aggressive thing to say, which you totally can. Would it be great? Probably not. You can do it. Um, (laughs) And I I think that that's evolved over time where we're going to have X amount of people who are going to be able to come in, go in, have the device already on hand, like know what they want to build, click publish and get to that. And that's an awesome really engaging milestone for a user. However, the realistic side of that is like, I can give you all the tools. If you're not inspired, you don't know what you want to build yet, then like, you're just going to sit surrounded by tools. (laughs) Um, And so really what I realized was onboarding wasn't about getting them to that core milestone or boss level of like Mm. trying to go and do that immediately. It was just about to teach them what to do with what's in the room and making sure Mm. that they can leave that onboarding project, knowing that if they started a brand new one, that they knew where to grab, they knew what went together. So for me, clicking that test button or that prototype is actually where like most like creative ideas spend a lot of their time, not the end polish. Yeah, And so that became more important for at least onboarding. Really fascinating. And it makes sense, right? You're probably just testing out some kind of idea and you know, you Take some time. For most people, they don't want to publish crap. <laughs> crap <laughs> apps. So they need to think through it already. Early on, you mentioned around asking when people sign up for VoiceFlow, you ask them, are they a developer? Are they, how are you customizing? I'm guessing if you're a hardcore developer, they're going to pick things up really quickly that somebody who doesn't know <laughs> what browser is, <laughs> so to speak. Are you providing a different experience for developers versus, um, let's say, like a new marketer or uh, let's say a business owner who a CEO might not be as tech savvy? Yeah. So I think like it's incredibly important to like match the level of the user with the level of expertise or like technicality that a tool has. Like a good example of that would be like with like Duolingo, for instance, like I used to be bilingual in French. I'm like awful at that now because I don't speak French anymore. That being said though, if I jumped into Duolingo and I was forced to start at level zero, I probably wouldn't make it to the point where I actually was getting challenged until I was already bored or like churned. It's kind of the same thing when you're dealing with like a technical versus non-technical product, except for us, like the way that you frame it is not necessarily, okay, like here's a much easier or beginner level of the product. It's more like the use case that you're solving for. 
So for designers or makers, or let's say the no-code folks that love voice flow, it's really more about empowerment in democratizing the access to this channel that would have otherwise been very blocked off had they not known how to code that language. And we all know there's a reason why you have a technical and a non-technical founder often <laughs> coming together to do stuff is like yeah. there's ideas and then there's like the actual kind of polished version of that thing. So for a lot of cases, like we want to get and serve up MVP faster for the no-code designers. And so for that, that might infer what resources we send them post-onboarding, that might infer how they communicate or where we point them in our community. And same with the developer. Like if they want to jump on, I want to immediately show them that like you can do so much of the customization, the powerfulness that you have and the control that you have with code with VoiceFlow. Here's how. And it's going to make it faster. So like you're basically taking that tool and you're just showing the correct Mm. part or like matching them what their use case is at that point. Interesting. I really love that. I think knowing that you're starting to talk about like your messaging can now be more catered to what yeah. you know, here is faster because you're a developer versus like maybe a business owner would be like, hey, you can get more, I don't know, potential customers through through this. Like you can just do this. Like it can be a viable channel. Like I think like mm. that's really like our core messaging is that anyone can do this. And like we're a tool that allows anyone to do that, but you can't sacrifice the power behind that. And I think like tools in the no-code space in particular are ultimately all like onboarding. When you think about it, it's like onboarding a new skill. When you first jump in, it's going to be very familiar, very new. However, the more that they use that, like now you see people like who use Webflow who are doing crazy shit Mm, that like no one would like ever imagine that you'd be able to do like years before with no code. And that's a leveling up process. Mm. So like you're seeing a lot more of that in the space as a whole. Really fascinating. I saw this guy, he built, I think Starcraft or something completely with Webflow as a playable (laughs) game. And I'm like, what the heck? People are creating video games (laughs) with, with Webflow now. I'm really, really fascinated by this. I think I guess a follow-up question to that is one thing that brings up is often when people think about onboarding, it's you know, it's new users and then you're done, onboarding's done. But you're now talking about, hey, you could onboard into more advanced things. Yeah. Right? Is that something that you would agree to or can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So I mean, like maybe it's not called onboarding like mm. as it continues in its entirety. But like in growth, like in particular when you're thinking about like scalable product-led growth, like you're talking about not just this entry point and this pass off, but you're thinking about how that scales for every user at whatever level that they're at, at whatever pace that they're at. You're thinking about end day, as they say. And so in that situation, what you're thinking about is perhaps an onboarding, like how do I just like get them familiarized? And then your next project is like, how do you retain them and keep them coming back? Then getting them from this casual user to a power user. And ultimately, like those are all customer journey problems that make them more sticky, that make them a better, more engaged user, and also make them feel better about using the product. And that ultimately all leads back into your original funnel. So maybe different names conventionally throughout that customer journey, but fundamentally you're leveling them up throughout the entire process. Mm. Going back to the video game again, I, I can't. I, I'm going, <laughs> yeah, it's how I think about it. <laughs> yeah, super. Like 
when I think about one game I played over and over again when I was a kid was Super Mario. Like the first stage, you learn how to jump and run. The second stage, you're in water, so you learn how to swim and and do other stuff. So like, there's that new level. Uh, what's that saying? New level, new devil. Like there's that new, <laughs> yeah. new skill you have to learn yeah. essentially, right? And like 100, like you want to do that, and you want them to be like you want to get them to a point of like ubiquity where like mm. they know the core actions, like the back of their hands, they don't even think about them anymore. And then you introduce something new and then that becomes ubiquitous. Now they've leveled up. Now you introduce something new. Cool. Then you get to like a milestone, something a little bit, that's a little bit meatier of an ask, but they're mm. already so familiar with everything else that they can focus their entire mind on that larger task, which no longer feels as intimidating as it could have, like in the Super Mario example, if you like took it from your sibling and they were at like one of the boss levels, you probably freak out. Right. Um, however, you put in the work to learn all the actions, you're now not even thinking about why you're making the decisions or the combos that you are, but you're going to be able to beat it because now you know how. And it's not going to give you the solution, but it is going to give you the tools so that you can succeed in that. I love it. I love video games. Anytime we talk about growth in video games, I'm in. <laughs> I want to talk about examples now, particularly you, you keep talking about this leveling up and are there any apps? Uh, you talked about Duolingo a little bit, but are there any, any other apps? It could be Duolingo, which you've seen. It's like, hey, how they level up their users is really, <laughs> really, really well done. Which ones are they? And can you share a little bit about that to to people who are tuning in? Yeah, I mean, like there's everything from like the classic examples of badges of like Yelp elites and like them unlocking things that are like merit-based versus more surprise and delight. Then there are examples of even... Like, I think, like, Superhuman in the early days, actually, they released, like, a one random campaign that I actually thought was really wicked was... Because uh, Superhuman, for those that are unfamiliar, is an alternative email service that tries to gamify and get you to inbox zero every day. And it uses predominantly shortcuts. For developers, using shortcuts, command line, like, terminal, super easy. For someone who, like, doesn't spend their time and they're switching from, like, Gmail over to that... It take, it's a little bit of a learning curve. And they got an onboarding specialist who teaches you where they all are. And there's a cheat sheet. But they released a game that was like a campaign. And it was like an 80s retro style like video game that was like basically like Space Invaders, but with you could only do it with the shortcuts from Superhuman. And that's a really awesome way of like teaching a user the core actions in order to be successful in that product without it feeling like a chore. Mm. Or I think like other ways of looking at it is you have like more transactional ones like Coinbase does a really good job at in their onboarding after you create an account, like teaching people like what are these alternative coins and forcing them to like basically get into the habit about reading white papers, which we all know with the meme coin surgeons that not everyone does. Like that <laughs> I think like that's a good example of like them taking something like okay, you want this coin. If you learn about it first, then you should get this coin and like packaging that up into their education system. <laughs> so there's, there's lots of apps that I think do a really good job at that, but it's also about making sure that it matches with what your user and like the actions that you want them to take is like, I'm not going to reward people with a voice app by them reading a blog post. So like that wouldn't make sense for me. However, right. 
like me focusing on, oh, hey, like if you get in the habit of like sharing your voice app with other people, you're far more likely to get a job as a conversation designer or like create mm. a really awesome portfolio. Right. And there's not a lot of those right now. So how do you do that? Interesting. And the way that you're positioning that is what is it in for them? And then you're just like, this could give you a job is what I'm hearing. I really, really love how you're putting that. One thing you said earlier is like, you don't want it to feel like a chore. And the problem often is onboarding. <laughs> the way that it's designed is like, oh, click here, click there. And part of our role is to let people have fun. I really love that superhuman yeah. example is it just makes time fly by faster if it's an entertaining experience versus one that you said earlier, it feels like a chore, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, that's ultimately it. Like as much as we we subscribe to software or we we purchase things for business reasons sometimes, like it still is an experience. Mm. And like whether or not like you're thinking about it as like, are they successful within my product? Like ultimately what you're trying to do is you're competing with all their other distractions. Like mm. if you're a mobile app, you're competing with every other mobile app on their home screen and ideally trying to make your way onto screen one or in their base. Like if you are a web app, you're competing with your million and one Chrome tabs. So how do you make sure like this is the one that they open up every day or every week, depending on your cadence. And so like there's all of these other like situational things that you're competing with that are outside of this fallacy that like I have a hundred percent of your attention right now, Mm. because that's very rarely the case nowadays. So why wouldn't you want that to be like a fun or rewarding experience for them? Yeah. And it makes it more memorable as well. I mean, like, man, I did not play that game for Superhuman. But if I did, I would be like, yo, it, it adds virality to it as well. Yeah. I mean, if a great experience like that, I was like, hey, bro, you need to try this just because it's a super interesting, different kind of way to approach uh, onboarding. I mean, like, there's also elements of, like, nostalgia to it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we're all humans, whether or not it's a user growth thing or it's a company growth thing. is like, you can always appeal to that side. Like, if you think about going back to, like, the mechanics of, like, why that game was done well, like, that could have just very well been, like, a speed test on, like, how quickly I could have done those shortcuts, which it fundamentally is. However, it was masked in the fact that it was an 80s retro game with, like... Yeah all the music that was like in tune with that, like the look of it. And then like also the nostalgia of like, most of us learned how to type using a program called all the right type. And like, maybe not the new kids, like they definitely like grew up with stuff. I didn't. Um, And so like with all the right type, that was ultimately like the same type of process. You're playing a game. It's teaching you how to use the keyboard and it's teaching you new gesture controls. So like, all of those elements create a memorable experience for a user that also feels homely, even though it's in a product that they never used before. So good. So, so, so good. I want to shift gears and talk about mistakes. I mean, like you've probably seen a lot of experiences, onboarding experiences. And what are common mistakes that you see when it comes to uh, that startups or growth folks or designers or even marketers make when it comes to creating onboarding experiences? Oh my God, there's so many. (laughs) Go for it. I mean, like, I think like the first one is like designing for looks over function. There's a Mm. fine line in between it. I'm guilty of this too. I go on Dribbble probably more than I go on Instagram. Like I I love 
design and its impact on things. And I think that there's a lot of cases where like you need to play a fine line in between like what looks aesthetically pleasing versus what serves the function that the user's looking for or what you as a business are looking for. So being UX centric is incredibly important, not just like shoving it in for the sake of shoving it in. I think the second one is like not having a clear owner for what or who owns onboarding or like why is it important in the organization? Because what often happens with onboarding as a sprint, and I call it a sprint because often it's not owned perpetually, is that you have kind of someone who's like, oh, we don't have onboarding. We shove something in there. And then like months later, year later, you're like, oh crap, like this is a really bad experience. And then like everyone panics, they solve it like in a really short period of time. And then the same thing happens, like rinse and repeat. So making sure that you have a plan rather than a reactionary reason to do something is also incredibly important. And I think like a third thing as like an an ode to caution there is also like, don't overthink things with your first onboarding. Like there's a catch 22 in between shoving something in there versus like it being the most perfect, most contextual, most like dynamic thing that's out there. And like, the truth is, is that onboarding is going to have to change. It is inherently a sprint that will grow as your customer base and your product does. And so making sure that you have strong opinions loosely held about that Mm, and know that it's experimentation zone is very important how you frame it. Because it's not a rinse and repeat sprint. Mm. It is a active thinking, active experimenting, and a lot of feedback goes into it. I love that. Thank you for for sharing all three of them. I feel like you can probably go on a rant, a good long hour rant about this. I want to start wrapping up. And we've talked a lot about different things uh, so far in the last 30 to 40 minutes around onboarding and experiences and and video games. (laughs) If you can share one or two piece of advice for, for folks who are looking to improve their onboarding experience, knowing that, you know, people tuning in, you've done this multiple times in different companies. What would be your one or two piece of advice you'd like to give to those folks? So I would say like the first one is like, if you want to be great at onboarding, understand that or feel confident in what you're suggesting for onboarding is like literally spend time and get into the habit of every time that you sign up for a new product, click record. Like I have an embarrassing Mm -hmm. amount of those videos on my computer. Um, (laughs) And like the biggest reason why you should get into that habit is because it changes the way that you think about things when you Mm. go through it. It's like, what stands out to you? What did you like about that? Having that log or what did you not like about that? Because it's often a lot easier to be more critical about things that are not things that you directly impact. But often those critical thoughts are what shapes what you do when you bring it back to the table and you're working on something yourself. So get into that habit because that will help you long-term. And I would say like the second thing there is like, honestly, get on the phone and talk to your users for it. There's not enough of us who do that. And especially if you want to be product led, like that means that your customers are advocating, self-motivating and are like ultimately going to be a huge channel for you. So why wouldn't you want to have a direct line into that? It's so good. I'm with you with the last thing. Talk to customers, something I've experienced, but thank you for sharing all of that. One final question. Uh, where can people find out more about you and where can people find out you know, if they wanted to see more of your work on whether it's on Twitter or blog or, or LinkedIn and where can people find out more about VoiceFo? 
Yeah, absolutely. So you can stay connected with me, reach out if you have any comments, if you have any questions. I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn under Emily Lanetto. And if you want to learn more about VoiceFlow, we have a wicked community that you can join on Facebook. If you just look up VoiceFlow or you can find us at VoiceFlowHQ or VoiceFlow.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Emily. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. 